0: These are, uh these are words, and this is, there's no way to warm up for this. There's no way to transition into this. This is just, um, this is just the way it is. I want to read these verses from Amos chapter 5. This is a, he's considered one of the minor prophets. I'm not sure if there are such a thing. What it really means is they're prophets who wrote smaller books. And uh, from the Old Testament, the words of God through the prophet, he says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I'll not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. We're talking about the church this morning. Listen to this song.
1: hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals, I hate all your show, away with your noisy worship, away with your noisy hymns, I'll stop up my ears when you're singing on. Oh. I hate all your show Instead, let there be a flood of justice An endless procession of righteous living, living Instead, let there be a flood of justice Instead of a show close when you're praying You sing right along with the band You shine up your shoes for services There's blood on your hands You turn your back on the homeless And the ones that don't fit in your plan Quit playing religion games Put on your hands Instead, let there be a flood of justice An endless procession of righteous living, living Instead, let there be a flood of justice Instead of a show I hate all your show
0: Welcome back to Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. Uh, Really glad you're here. You may be thinking, are we still doing this? Is this like, what, part 34? (laughs) I hope you're not tired of it yet. It's actually part 7. The reason we're still going on in the series that we started back on July 5th is because um, you have some great questions. I'm not sure when this is going to end. It will, eventually. Back in June, I asked you to submit your really big questions. Some of you haven't been around church for very long and you submitted some great questions. So believe it or not, some of you who have been around church for a long time, I mean a long time, um, submitted some pretty hairy questions too. There, are, These are questions, some of these questions that we've covered already and that we might tackle yet <clears throat> are questions that... Not only you struggle with, but people near you struggle with, and people who wouldn't go to church no matter what, they struggle with these questions too, and, and a lot of them are questions that people for hundreds of years have struggled with. These are some of the toughest questions that can be directed towards Christianity. And so we're really glad you're here today. We're glad you've stuck it out through this series and that you've been really intentional about that. Thank you for all the great feedback that uh, you've been giving. It's been really helpful for me. And if you're listening to a CD or to the podcast, thank you for being intentional uh, about staying engaged with this series. I just want to remind you that there's a downloadable summary of the notes from each message in this series on our media player on our website. And then a few weeks ago... We started experimenting with posting the summary notes on our Facebook page as the service is starting. So if you are if you have your mobile device and you're going to be surfing Facebook anyway, uh, click on the image there on the Facebook page and you can follow along if that helps you. If that's a distraction for you or if you have no idea what I'm even talking about, then just don't worry about it. So far, we've covered six big, hairy, audacious questions. We call them B-hacks. And today's question is this. <clears throat> Why should I be a part of a church when the church has such a terrible history? Great question. You could add, when the church in our city has such a terrible history, it would still be a great question. And some of you and some of your friends and family and coworkers ask the question and you don't even you don't even you know, you don't even need the, the terrible history part. You know, why should I be part of a church at all? What's the point? What's where's the value in that? Why should I be part of a church? There's a growing movement of people who are saying, look, I can be a Christian, I can follow Jesus, but I don't really need to go to church. Uh, why would I want to be part of a church? Why, should I, why would I want to be part of a church that doesn't meet all my needs? Why would I want to be part of a church with a less than stellar history? Why would I bother with any of that? Big picture, why would I want to be part of a church when the church has such a terrible history? <coughs> In my research a few weeks ago, I was reading an article Uh, where someone is asking the question this way. They asked the question, they said, how should I respond to the failings of the church without rejecting her outright? How should I respond to the failings of the church without rejecting her outright? And you might look at that and think, well, that's weird wording, first of all. Why does it say without rejecting her outright? Well, this person who crafted this question obviously spent some time around the church because that's actually proper English, because the church is not an it. Theologically, the church is more than an institution and more than an organization. Theologically, the church is the bride of Christ. And the Bible uses that metaphor, and you're like, well, that's just weird. And Jesus is like, I don't care what you think. I love my bride. Um, And that's why those sometimes you'll see the church referred to that way. Oh, by the way, faith community fellowship is not the church. You're like, oh, okay, then I'm going to leave because I thought I was... Family Bible Church up the road, not the church. Ellsworth Assembly of God are up the road and around the corner, not the church. St. Joe's Catholic Church, not the church. None of the nearly 20 churches in Ellsworth and our surrounding communities comprise the whole church. This building, not a church. We refer to it that way because it's just easy to say. Um, you know, for the first eight years of our existence at Faith Community, we were portable. We met and rented facilities. And by that, I mean we moved in and set up and had church and tore down and packed up every weekend. We did it for eight and a half years. When someone would say, well, where is your church? We would say, just to be smart, we'd say, standing right in front of you. I am the church. Um, but where do you meet? Oh, we meet at the Y. Oh, and it was really easy then to avoid the terminology and the mindset that comes along with, with settling and having a permanent location. We never referred to the gym at the Y as our church. It didn't even make sense. Um, so when we moved into this property, we were very intentional about calling it something other than the church. Remember, remember that? Those of you who were here and part of that over 10 years ago, we called it, a lot of us just call it, we call it the ministry center. I'm going to the ministry center. I'm going down to the ministry center. We're going to meet at the ministry center. Some of you still refer to it that way. Most of us just call it the church. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not like evil. It's not sinful. I don't think God's disappointed in you if you say, I'm going to the church. You know, I left my Bible at the church again, that kind of thing. It's like, it's like writing Christmas Xmas. It doesn't mean Christmas isn't Christmas. It's just another way of writing the word Christmas. Xmas isn't a war on Christmas. Um, do you feel a rant coming on? <laughs> Xmas is not a war on Christmas. X is actually the Greek letter chi, which I know you wanted to know this, which is an accepted abbreviation of the word Christos or Christ. It's not new. It isn't new to our culture. It isn't meant to replace Jesus. If you're offended when non-Christians seem to be taking Christ out of Christmas, I would argue that Christ was never in their Christmas. So don't worry about it. If it's a big deal to you, I would suggest... I want you to hear this, okay? Because if that's a big deal to you, that kind of stuff's a big deal to you, and I'm trivializing it, and you're offended already, and I haven't even really gotten into my message yet. If that's a big deal to you, I would suggest, if keeping Christ in Christmas is a big deal to you, I would suggest taking all the money that you spend on Christmas presents for your kids and giving it to organizations that care for the less fortunate. That's what I would suggest. If, If you're really intent about keeping Christ in Christmas, that would be keeping Christ in Christmas. Okay, end of rant. What was I talking about? Um, I was talking about Xmas, and that got me all distracted. Um, we're talking about church. This is not the church. A building is not the church. An organization is not the church. A denomination is not the church. A local church does not comprise the whole church. When you think about it. It's ten twenty-seven. There are probably fifteen other local church bodies meeting for worship in our community right now. As all of us as part of the church, part of the church. So how then do we respond to the failings of the church without neglecting her or rejecting her outright? It's a great question. We certainly do have failings. I feel the weight of that question as a leader in the church. Uh, You know what I worry about? I worry about betraying your trust as a leader in the church. I want to be a leader who's trustworthy. I want to be a leader who's worth following. Um, And so... So many of you have had your trust breached by people in a church and by your church experience, people in leadership, people of influence. Maybe there were people in the church who judged you, which I find that hard to believe, but possibly the rare occasion there'd be people in a church that would judge somebody else, uh, people who hurt you, uh, people who hurt people you cared about. So it causes us to ask a question, why would I trust the church when so many people in the church are not trustworthy? And, of course, the bottom line question in this line of thinking, is why do I have to go to church, which is every 12-year-old boy who ever lived, he's asked that question. Some of you, you asked that question today, and you're not 12 years old anymore. You're like, why do I have to go to church? And I I don't know why you're here. I'm here because my wife reminded me I'm the pastor. It's my turn to preach today. That's why I'm here. But why do we have to go to church? I mean, you could stay home, you could do church online and there's all kinds of great churches that offer online services and you can have interaction and be part of an online community. You can do your own version of church and more and more people are doing that and so why do I have to go to church? Why should i be part of a church when the church has such a terrible history? We're going to talk about this. We've done some things as the church over the last 2000 years that have been horrific. And for some of your friends and family and coworkers, and some of them are believers and some of them are not, they don't go to church because they've been to church, right? It's not really a historical thing. They don't even have to read history. They've just been around Christians. They've been around pastors. They've, they've been to church. They don't need the perspective of history. They just need their own personal experience to know that their own church experience is not something they want. So how do you answer that? you ever had anyone ask you why you go to church? Why am I part of a church? Why am I part of a church when the church has such a terrible history? We can't deny that. Why am I part of a church when I am a flawed person? Well, as you know, throughout this series, we've been trying to answer each week's question with another question. So the question I want to ask in response to this question is this, what if God's power works best in human weakness? What if God's power works best in human weakness? And some of you are like, cop out. I mean, really, Todd? It's the best you could come up with? But seriously, what if God's power works best in human weakness? Wait. Including yours. Because let's be honest. That's kind of all we got. All I've got is my weakness. I'm not infallible. And I don't mean to use big religious words. Infallible simply means never failing or incapable of doing wrong. So... We're going uh, to talk about church history. And some of you grew up Catholic. Um, and I know a lot of you grew up Catholic. And you'd be surprised how many people in this room grew up Catholic. And you were taught that the Pope is infallible. And I'm not here to slam other faiths or other branches of our Christian faith. I think there will be Roman Catholics in heaven in their own section. And no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Just kidding. <clears throat> and I understand the church has a checkered history. There are some people who claim infallibility. But all I have to do is move into their house for about 24 hours, you'll discover that they are not infallible. For me, all I bring to my role in this church is my weakness. All I bring to my calling is my weakness. It shows up in my leadership. It shows up in my interactions with you. It shows up in my marriage. It shows up in my parenting. It shows up in my friendships. Um, I don't think I'm infallible, and you know me. You know I'm not infallible. So, oh my goodness, what if what if God's power works best in human weakness, including yours? So, for these next few minutes, as we talk about the church, remember the church isn't a building, the church isn't an organization, it isn't an institution, it's not limited to one local church. Remember a few months ago in our megachurch series back when oh, was that in the winter and spring, and we said that the church is a movement. It's a movement. It's made of people like you and me. So let's get into this. Let's educate ourselves a little bit. Um, on this on this topic and we've done this every almost every week in this series where we've gotten a little bit uh, into some history and a little bit into a little intellectual arguments and um, so that's where we're going to go for a few minutes going to talk about five tragic periods in church history because we have some terrible moments in the christian church Uh, if you try to dismiss it and you try to say well it wasn't really that bad that's revisionist history and you don't really No, no 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 they were terrible There are some things done in the name of Christianity that were inexcusable. So let's look at them historically. Let's try to figure out what to do with that and how do we respond to that. What's an appropriate response when it comes to these ugly periods of church history. So period number one is the period of the Crusades. You're probably familiar with that term. You covered that in high school or maybe in college. What were the Crusades? Well, the first crusade happened in 1096 A.D., about 1,000 years after the birth of the church and about 1,000 years ago. It was initiated by the Pope, Pope Urban II, in 1096. The purpose was to help the church withstand the growth of Islam. Islam was a fairly new religion at the time, and it had really begun to organize, and it had spread to a big chunk of the known world, and it swept through the Holy Land. And at one point, the Pope decided it was time to take back Jerusalem. And it was a messy situation because the Jews claimed it, and the Christians claimed it, and now Islam claimed it. By the way, that's still the issue fueling the tension in the Middle East. Pope Urban decided in 1096 that he was going to take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. And there wasn't just there was just one crusade. There were many crusades over several centuries led by multiple popes and by lay people who established their influence to start another crusade. There's no authoritative historical account of the crusades. No one can say for sure even how many there were. There were probably over a dozen. Remember, this is Christians killing other people in the name of of Jesus. I can't, I really can't believe that the evangelical church in America uses the word crusade to describe an evangelistic outreach event. Ever heard of that? Ever heard of a church having an evangelistic crusade? We've, I've used it. I, yeah, that's just not known in our history. Ever heard of a parachurch organization filling a baseball stadium for an evangelistic crusade? Can you, can you even believe that the modern church today, knowing what we know about history, uses those words? I think words matter. Like, I can't believe some sports teams call themselves crusaders. I think words matter, and I think it's important to know our own history. So anyway, the crusades. Uh, period number two is the Inquisition. The Inquisition happened before the Protestant Reformation, and we claim our lineage within the Reformation, thanks to Martin Luther and his 93 uh, thesis or 95, the- 95 Theses in 1517, and his teaching on justification by faith alone, and his break with the papacy, and, and his ex- and excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. Thanks to that, that's where we trace our church lineage. The Inquisition took place before the Reformation. It was designed to, pr- to suppress a group of Christians who were known as Waldensians, named after their founder, Peter Waldo. Waldo taught that the main tenets of Protestantism, long, he taught them long before Protestantism became a thing. And they took hold, uh, and before they really took hold, it widespread in the Reformation. And it was this little, this kind of an uprising before uh, it really gained traction. And it was around the, before the time of Martin Luther. The Roman Catholic Church began to feel threatened by the Waldensians, so they started to ask questions. In fact, they did a lot more than ask questions. They were known for their torture techniques in order to get people to renounce what they considered to be heresy. When, if I want to have a conversation with someone about what I think maybe is, a, is an inaccurate interpretation of Scripture, I've found that a conversation over coffee is cool. <laughs> torture, uh, maybe not so effective, but then again... Depends on what your end game is, I guess, because the Inquisition just continued um, from the 12th century into the 13th century. Oh, and if torture didn't get them to renounce their beliefs, then they would kill them. Christians, killing Christians in the name of Jesus. So we went from killing Muslims to killing our own. Before you judge, you're like, yeah, but that wasn't us. That was the Catholic Church, and we aren't Catholics. Before we judge the Catholic Church too harshly, um, the Protestants launched their own inquisition a little later on. And the stuff that happened during that inquisition, uh, actions that were authorized and sanctioned by their respective churches, it was it was reprehensible. Number three, there are the witch trials. Maybe we're a little more familiar with this. This happened right here in New England. And the witch trials were initiated by the Protestants. And I'm, I'm a Protestant, and since you're here this morning, you probably <coughs> are too, and maybe you don't know that. But we're kind of most of us Protestants here. In the 17th century in Massachusetts, the Puritans suspected that certain women in their communities were witches. And before long, a mass hysteria kind of thing developed, and there was an inquisition of sorts. And um, this, this, this uh, investigation into witches in Puritan New England and people who were completely innocent were tortured and burned at the stake right down the road from us. Number four is missionary exploitation. You may have studied this and thought, you know, I can't believe what the Europeans did in the name of Jesus to the Native Americans and the First Nations in North America. There were some terrible things done in the name of Jesus in North America by European missionaries. Some, oh, don't get me wrong, some wonderful things were accomplished too. And of course, over the centuries, some amazing things have been done and accomplished by, by missionaries and entire people groups have been you know, introduced to the, the hope of the gospel and countless people around the world have become followers of Jesus because of the selfless, faithful, persistent work of godly missionaries. But the truth is, some unbelievably terrible things were done by missionaries in the name of Jesus at certain places at certain times, North America included. And the last one is not really a period, it's... Uh, it's just a phenomenon in church history, and it's anti-Semitism. Martin Luther, whose teacher's teachings and his boldness and his stand started the Protestant Reformation, in his old age became increasingly anti-Semitic. By anti-Semitic, we mean prejudice or hatred or discrimination against Jews as an ethnic, religious, or racial group. In Martin Luther's case, it might have been a mental health issue. Um, given his understanding of Scripture, it's hard to reconcile his anti-Semitic views late in his life, but the fact is some Christian groups in some Christian denominations, have not been kind to Jews over the years. That's changed a lot. And we we kind of take it for granted, but it's changed a lot in the last 60 or 70 years, especially in the evangelical Christian community, of which I would consider myself a part. Today, some of the best friends that Jews as a people have are Christians, but that hasn't always been the case. And in some parts of the world, in some parts of this country even, it isn't necessarily the case. So in light of all this, you're feeling pretty encouraged now, in light of all this... Why would you want to be part of a church that has such a terrible history? A couple thoughts on that. Number one, separate authentic Christianity from what was done in the name of Christianity. Okay? Some of you run businesses or maybe you manage employees and an employee does something and you're like, whoa, 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 don't, we don't do those things. And that's not us. That's not who we are. Or people in your family make decisions and you're like, well, that's not really what our family's all about. In the past, there have been some things done in the name of Christianity that have nothing to do with authentic Christianity. And it's an important distinction. And I don't think it justifies what happened, but it it certainly uh, helps explain it a little bit, but it doesn't justify it. We need to understand that there are two prongs to this thing. There are things that are done in the name of Christianity, and there are things that are actual authentic Christianity. All right? Because the more you study and the more you get to know about Jesus, you understand that he wouldn't be very happy with some of these atrocities that were perpetrated by the church. So we need to separate it, make the distinction, separate authentic Christianity from what has been done in the name of Christianity and uh, make that distinction. So what is authentic first century Christianity? What is it then? What makes it stand out? What, What are its distinctives? There are a few things, I think, that really define authentic first century Christianity things that Christians treated very differently than any other religion at the time or anyone else in the culture. And this really has very little to do with what they believed. It had a lot to do with what they did with what they believed. So it's going to surprise, this list might surprise you. We're talking about distinctives of authentic first century Christianity. Number one, ready, was sex. I would not have put that at the top of the list. Here's, here's why we, we need to understand that authentic first-century Christianity had a very different ethic about sex. In their first-century culture, you just did whatever, wherever, whenever, with whomever. There were no boundaries. That's what Roman religion was, was about. That's what Greek religions were all about. Uh, all these religions had virtually no restrictions on sex. And In fact, some of their religious expressions and practices included sexual acts. Sex slavery was normal. Pedophilia was normal. Sexual abuse was normal women were treated as property. And Christians came along in the first century as they processed the words of Jesus and they said, no more. Women, we see value in you. In fact, because of what we believe about God's design for marriage, we're going to say, and this is almost unheard of today, it was certainly unheard of in their first century Greco-Roman culture. We're going to say, husbands, you're going to love one woman for life. And you're going to cherish her, and you're going to protect her, and you're going to respect her, and you're going to value her, and you're going to love her as Jesus loved the church. That's the new standard. And this cultural norm that they were in of sex being with whomever, whenever, wherever, whatever, no more. We're going to channel sex into the confines of marriage, and that's how first century Christianity handled sex, and it was revolutionary. Number two is power. Christians did something that was very different than anything that had ever been done before in the context of religion. Jesus said, if you have power, you use your power to benefit other people. And leaders, instead of being served, you serve. That's how you lead. You lead by serving. And if you look at authentic first century Christianity, people used power and influence to benefit other people. The third distinctive of first century Christianity was money. Christians viewed their money as a means, listen to help other people. As Christians, our mission isn't to build something for ourselves. Our mission is to reach into Ellsworth and into all the communities in our area and to introduce people to the love and the grace of their Heavenly Father. It's about sharing with others. And in the first century, Christians were the most radically generous people in the culture. When the first-century Greco-Roman culture saw how the the Christians approached sex and power and money, they were like, "Oh my, these people these people are diff- they're radically different." The Apostle Paul summarized it really well. We're going to look at a couple of his teachings. Uh, here's what he had to say. This is Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. He said, "Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people." This grace was given me. Now remember, before his conversion, Paul was somebody who went out, led a widespread persecution against the church. He was out to destroy it and to destroy anybody who claimed the name of Jesus until he met Jesus. And he was so radically changed by that encounter. He went out and he planted more churches than anybody in the first century. His life was turned completely upside down. And he said, I deserve death and God gave me new life and his grace was given to me. And here's what I'm going to do. He says, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, listen, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What's the purpose of the church? He says, through the church, not the building, not an organization, not the denomination, people, you. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Well, I don't know exactly. But when the angels and even the demons and other beings in the spirit realm say to God, show us your wisdom. He says, okay, here, look at my people. Look at the church. Do you see how surrendered they are? See how compassionate they are? See how radically generous they are? See how transformed they are? See my grace at work in them? I I really have never even thought of it working that way. You ever thought about this dialogue happening in the spirit realm? Here's how Paul finishes his thought, verse 11. He says, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about Whatever church we attend, it's about Jesus and his work in you and his work in me. In the first few centuries after Jesus walked on the earth, Christianity had a unique contribution. It's hard for us to see this because we grew up in the aftermath of, of you know, in the, in the influence of hundreds of years of Christendom. We don't know what it's like to live in a world that hasn't been influenced by Christianity. And I'm not just talking about America. Um, uh, Inside the church and outside the church, we think, well, that's, not, that's just not how people behave, you know? Well, read history. Study other cultures where Christianity's influence hasn't been the same. The things that you and I take for granted, well, that's just basic human rights. No, it's, it's not just basic human rights. It's the result of centuries of Christian influence. For example, Christianity's unique contribution starts with compassion. And we're like, but that's a basic human thing. No, it's not. Some behaviors are unthinkable to us because Jesus and his followers have introduced a different standard, and that's why some things are unthinkable to us. You know, in the first century, if you were a widow, if you were a widow in the first century, you were left on your own, your husband was your ticket, and if he died, you were out of luck. Oh, and people died young in the first century. And eventually, even the Roman leaders came and they saw, oh my goodness, if you're a widow, you're better off to be a Christian. You know why? Because you'll get cared for. Because look at the way the people, they love people. Look at the way they care for people. Look at the way they care for the poor. Look at the way they care for the orphans. Look at the way they care for the disadvantaged and the marginalized. And we think, well, of course, everybody's like that. Of course, we're going to serve, you know, we're going to care for widows. No, in the first century, that was radically unique. It was Christianity's unique contribution. So there's compassion. Second thing, unique contribution was dignity. And again, we're like, well, everybody knows this. It's a basic human expectation. No, it's not. Christians had this idea that everybody, even those who disagree with us, everybody carries within them the image of God. Why did they think that? Because the Scripture says so. That's why. And if the Scriptures say so, they believed it and changed their behavior accordingly. And they began to look at people and to say, even though you're different than me, even though I might disagree with you on some things, you bear the image of God. You deserve to be treated with dignity. And that was a new approach. Because the accepted response was, if you disagreed with someone, at the very least, you distance yourself from them. In some cases, you cut them off. And in some cases, you'd be justified in killing them. But Christians treated people differently. Third thing is liberty. Again, when it came to liberty, Christians were different. Because in many religions... People were imprisoned and tortured and killed in the name of religion. We've already acknowledged that Christianity has some of that in its history, and that's not authentic Christianity. First century Christians said, I'd rather die than see you restrained or imprisoned, or God forbid, killed for what you believe. I'll give my life for your sake. And if we disagree, I'll respect your right to disagree. You're at liberty to disagree with me. And 1,700 years later, a nation would be founded that said... We hold these truths to be self-evident, and that reads well. A lot of you memorize that, and it reads well. But these truths are not self-evident. These truths are the result of hundreds of years of Christian influence. I know. Number four, Christianity's unique contribution, conscience. Conscience. This idea that God has seared on our conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit, even if you've never read the Bible, even if you've never really embraced your personal responsibility to explore and pursue and dig into God's truth, there's still something in you that says you probably shouldn't do this, and you probably shouldn't do that, and you probably should do this. First century Christians had the most sensitive conscience. They were so open to the voice of God in their lives and the impact of God's truth on their minds. Conscience. Here's one that you probably wouldn't think of, but I, the more I read and researched it, I just believe this is really important. And number five is literacy. We're talking about Christianity's unique contribution. Literacy. And you're like, really? You know, how so? Isn't that a basic human right? Study history. Because the answer is, not usually. It's not usually a basic human right. You know who advanced the idea that everyone should have the right to literacy more than any other group in human history? It was Christians. And this one took a a long time to take root. But it really became a significant issue around the time of the Reformation about 500 years ago. Thanks in part to Gutenberg and his removable type printing press, uh, leaders of the Protestant Reformation believed that everybody should be able to read the Bible in their own language. That's why I'm a broken record. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. If you read the stories of the sacrifices that were made so that you could have a Bible in your own language, the lives that were law, that were given, martyrs, people killed for the sake of putting the Bible in our language. That's why we open the Bible here every Sunday and it's why we encourage you to open it as often as you can through the week, read your Bible. The Reformation fueled this ethic of literacy. And if you look at how that influenced history, you don't have to be a Christian to see that it's the result of literacy. Uh, where, where cultures have grown and progressed, literacy is a unique contribution of Christianity. Finally, finally, humility. Humility. Some of you are so attracted to Jesus and you don't know why, and my guess is that part of it is his humility. And Christianity, when it's properly exercised, is all about humility. One historian said it this way when he was talking about the rapid rise of Christianity. He said, so when you take into consideration the early Christians' fearless devotion to the faith, their willingness to testify through their own martyrdom to the truth of Christ, their humble and compassionate lifestyle, their care for each other, and the helpless and the hurting and the disenfranchised in their community, their commitment to prayer, their empowerment by the Holy Spirit, you can begin to understand why the faith spreads so quickly. That was the first couple centuries of Christianity. Then something changed. There was a Roman emperor named Constantine who came along, and he was was a pagan. He went into a battle in 311 A.D. And in 313 issued what we know as the Edict of Milan. And with the Edict of Milan, something happened to Christianity. For nearly 300 years, Christians were persecuted. And under the Edict of Milan, they went from persecuted to tolerated. And suddenly, Christianity was a permitted religion. And by the end of Constantine's life, it went from being tolerated to promoted. And Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And politics and religion fused. And you're like, I kind of think that's a bad thing, but maybe it's a good thing, but maybe it's mostly a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> think about this situation. All these Roman... All these priests in the Roman Empire who used to be pagan priests, bring your sacrifices for all your gods and the sun god and this god and that god and some other god and all the temple prostitutes and all that. And all of a sudden, these pagan priests had no followers and they were unemployed. And now they they had these miraculous conversions to Christianity and it diluted the faith. You had people in spiritual leadership positions who were no more Christian. And for about 1700 years, politics and religion were fused. And you and I are living in a moment in history where that is being disentangled in our culture. And Christendom, as we know it, is changing. Some would say it's collapsing with all the doom and gloom and end times talk and, you know, every fear mongering and despair and churches closing their doors. I actually believe that we are going back to a model that will look a lot more like the first century than the 20th century. And I think this could be a good thing. I know there's this tension. There's this tension between the ideal church and the real church. And the real church has a checkered history. And so we've been talking about it and you're like, I'd rather just be part of the ideal church and not that interested in being a part of the real church and uh, the, what, you know, what actually happened there. I'd rather just pass on all that. That's fine. You can do that if you want to. But unlike, um, unlike some pastors that I've talked to recently in our community, I'm still excited about the future of the church As much as some churches are in decline, I'm excited about what God is doing in this local church and what God is doing among believers in the church in our community. There's some good things happening in some churches in our town and what God is doing in his church in this country and around the globe. I was just reading an article the other day about the newest mega churches that they're actually calling giga churches, churches over 10,000 people, and that by within the next five years, there will be multiple churches in this country with over 100,000 attendees and members. Um. I think God's doing something in the church, in this, in this culture and around the globe. Here's the thing I know about the future of, this, of the church and this church included. It's, it's not going to look anything like we've seen in our lifetime. And that's okay. Right? Yeah, okay. Whew. We're okay with that, right? If we move forward and we're being the church and the, the church is having impact and influence and people are coming to know Christ and the kingdom is expanding, we're okay if it looks nothing like we've ever seen, right? Because if you just want it to look like it's always been, I, you're going to be really uncomfortable here for the next five years, I'm just telling you. I'm excited about it because I don't, I don't believe God's going to give up on the church. Oh, a lot of Christians have given up on the church. A lot of pastors have given up on the church. God's not given up on the church. So much good has been done through the church in the name of Jesus over the years, and sometimes we can't even see it. The church is innately good. It's serving an eternal purpose. The church is still the bride of Christ. But the church isn't perfect. The reason the church isn't perfect is because you and I are not perfect except for somebody over there. <laughs> the church is me, and the church is you, and we are imperfect people. So before you give up on the church, let's go back to where we started. What if God's power works best in human weakness, including yours? I want to spend our last few minutes talking, uh, take, kind of taking this to a different place that, that's much more personal. So if you're not a Christian, uh, you just get to listen in for this next couple minutes. But if you are a Christian, I hope this resonates. Based on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's trying to explain the mystery of the church and how it works, and, because this is brand new you know, to his audience and why it's going to be around for a long time and why Jesus loves her so much. And he uses this metaphor, and it's so powerful. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let your light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure. I love that. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. I don't know if you spent much time looking at pottery. Um, I hadn't until about three years ago when our daughter Erin started dabbling in it with, uh, with our friend Mary. Mary had a pottery wheel, and they spent some time working with clay and creating some really cool pottery pieces. Um, this is one of her early creations. The thing I discovered in watching them work at the wheel is that clay would sometimes fall apart before they ever finished the piece. Even the very best piece of pottery, like this one right here, which is a collector's item, even the very best piece of pottery is imperfect. Today, most of our pottery is decorative. But in the first century, pottery was utilitarian. It it was used every day. It was inevitably, it would get dropped, or it would break into a million pieces, and sometimes it would develop cracks and holes because of its imperfections. Paul says, you're like that. He says, God's power works best in weakness, including yours. Throughout history, God has used ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And I still believe at the end of the day, the potential of the church is still greater than the problems of the church because your potential is still greater than your problems. I want you to see how this works a few weeks ago we uh, closed the message by turning off all the lights and lighting a single candle how many of you were here for that a couple Sundays ago we were talking about thriving in a godless culture in that day that was the question of the week how do we how do Christians thrive in a godless culture and I wanted you to see the impact of one small light burning in the darkness today I want to go a step further So I've got some guys right now who are going to go right now and distribute some glow sticks to you, okay? We're not going to use candles because they make a mess. So everybody is going to get a glow stick. And if, uh, yeah, just kind of throw them out there and see if we can get those spread out as fast as possible. Don't don't break them yet. Just hold them, please. I'll give you the instructions here in just a second. And uh, if the glow stick is a new thing for you. um, I don't know where I was going with that, but... All right, cool. We're almost there. So, for those of you who don't know how a glow stick works, just take your glow stick like this and break it on one end, and then break it all the way down. Break it all the way down. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So it's pliable all the way down. Thank you, everybody. And uh, we can actually now that everybody's in a, when everybody's in a seat, we can turn lights off. So for those of you I asked to turn lights off, if you would do that, now just give it a little shake. Give it a shake like that. Look at you. Dancing fools. Come on, you can do it. Yep. All right, you're getting it. You're getting it. Okay. All right, everybody ready? Just hold your glow stick up like this. Everybody just hold your glow stick up like this, and we're going to kill the lights. Here we go. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God. That somehow in the darkness, the light of the church will keep shining. The light of Jesus will keep shining. I'm afraid some of us focus on the flaws. We focus on the cracks. We focus on the imperfections. You think my life will never be what I want it to be. I've been damaged to the point that I don't think there's any way God could use me now. The Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. no. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We all know that the church isn't perfect. We all know that our church isn't perfect. We know we make mistakes, but thanks to the church, some of you are starting to love when you thought you would never know love. Some of you are starting to experience love when you thought you would never be loved again. Some of you are starting to find purpose when you thought you would just live the rest of your days just doing what you need to do to get by. Some of you are starting to find freedom when you thought you would just live in bondage to your past or to your addiction or to your baggage for the rest of your life. And you're realizing that we have this treasure in jars of clay. And that when we're really being the church, it's the light of God shining through us together. Not for our sake, not for the sake of a a local church, not for the sake of a denomination, but for the sake of a world surrounded by darkness. It's not any one of us individually. Although, as we demonstrated a couple of weeks ago, your role is far more important than you may think. But it's not an organization, it's not a building. It's each of us moving purposely together that makes a difference. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is a light shining in darkness. Thank you that you are the hope of the world, the hope of the church, the hope for the influence of the church. Thank you for all that is still authentic about your church. We even thank you for circumstances that drive us back to our original purpose. Thank you for those sometimes unwelcome circumstances that cause us to recalibrate. Father, I pray for each individual in this room. Collectively, we are the church. Individually, we're members of the body. We all have a role to play. So I pray for those who are struggling today. I pray for those who are still finding their way Pray for the health of this local body. May we always stay on mission. May we rally around the call of Jesus on our lives. Pray for the church in our community, represented by a couple dozen local churches. May we collectively be a shining light in the darkness. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this song,
2: brothers, let us come to. Stand firm in the truth Now set your